Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1974 Ingmar Bergman film Scenes from a Marriage. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, uh, I'm just going to start off with uh, with our typical opener because uh, I'm actually curious. What is your history with this film? Had you seen it before, and have you seen the original six hour miniseries of this? Right. Yeah. Those are those are good questions. No, um, I had not seen it before, although. I remember, I remember when it was on PBS because uh, I'm, I'm of that age. But I, I did not watch it, uh, and I haven't seen the the, the full length miniseries. And I'm glad you asked that question because I want to say up front that as I did my research on the film, almost every everybody I read uh, felt that the miniseries was superior in some ways. Um, and as you probably know, there's a good um, extra in the Criterion disc peter cowie does a very nice job of describing the difference between the two and i actually was tempted at one point to watch at least some of the t- tv episodes but i decided i'd better not for the purpose of this conversation because then it would probably affect my i'd start referring to things that were in the tv to tv version that weren't in the in the movie version um but you know no, so i'm i'm just fresh to the film first time i've seen it that that's um I think we watched it in the right way, though, because my feeling is if you've seen the 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 six hour TV series, that there would be this sense of like, well, hmm. what do I like? Like, why would I watch the film? And, and when you watch the theatrical release, I'm still interested. I, I likely will go back and watch the all, all six episodes because the 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 Peter Cowie um, featurette is really interesting because he doesn't explain everything, but he points to certain scenes where I'm like, oh my goodness, I kind of need to see this that yes. he's talking about. Um, so so that's actually where what I wanted to think about was like um sort of not the differences between these, but but how we think about this. So is in your mind, does it seem like the definitive version of this project, if there is such a thing, is the is the TV series and that the other is um looked at as a a, a secondary project? Well, you know, I, I think so, but you know, based on my understanding that you know Bergman did not conceive this as a film; he conceived it as a TV series. Um, and I should say, uh, as Peter Cowie also talks about in that featurette, Bergman was very much on the decline at this point in his career. Um, he hadn't really had much success really since Persona, which is where we left him in 1966. Um, and so the the TV was a way for him. He'd had some failures on TV as well. He, he often had uh, plays that were filmed for TV. So he really, th- and, and he shot this in 16 mil. We should say that as well. And it gets blown up to 35 millimeter for the theatrical release. But it, no, it, I think what happened was the, the series was such an unexpected triumph in, in Sweden and then throughout Scandinavia and Europe that then they realized, Rigman uh, realized he needed to find a way to get it to a larger audience. So that's when he, he edited it so he really but he didn't really begin with it as as a theatrical film well what's interesting is it 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 seems like they they did the if bergman does the theatrical cut so so kind of more people can see it and especially like you know it comes to america and then it gets pretty celebrated in america which then leads to the tv series airing in the late 70s so it's like like the 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 one grew out of the other and then grew back into the original, you know, uh, I think you kind of, as this, uh, as this grows up, one of the interesting things that, that, uh, how talks about in that featurette is that, um, 
and I wasn't aware of this, that Bergman's movies were not particularly popular in Sweden. So he, he made the case that that this was probably seen by more people in his home country than anything else he had done, and maybe than anything else he had done combined. Like like that 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 um that this was the first time he was taking on something that was maybe particularly modern, particularly Swedish, or speaking to that audience in a particular kind of way. Yeah, and I and I think you know from what I understand, it kind of took it kind of took everybody by surprise because it was like, oh yeah, this is Bergman. Uh, we know what we're going to get. But then evidently, after the first episode, people found it so engaging. You know, somebody I think it was Lee Ullman. There's a you probably saw there's a wonderful inter- interview with Lee Ullman and Erlen Joseph, Erlen Josephson, and they talk about the streets being empty at the time that the that the uh, episode was airing which is you know it's one of those pre-streaming phenomena which i'm afraid have, have has gone away but the idea that this is appointment viewing right this is the time you have to watch it and and it, it has it has a there's a whole mythology that's grown up around it right this this issue this claim that the divorce rate went up um, particularly in denmark for whatever reason after the film after the series was shown but it certainly was a phenomenon and yes probably the most popular thing bergman had done at least since the uh, late 50s now, what's interesting about the theatrical release, and you can definitely feel this, and in, in listening to and reading about the the television series, you realize that the television series has far more characters in it. Mm-hmm. There, there's you're seeing the the two leads um, apart from each other a little bit more. Where yeah. where it's interesting is in the theatrical release in the first uh, two episodes. You're seeing them interact with other people. You're seeing them go out into the world. But for the final four scenes, which is the bulk of the movie, all of that is gone. And it is these two people in a room together. Um, so so definitely the focus really tightens, which actually fits with the the shooting style of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is not I mean, Bergman does a lot of interesting things with the with the camera in a movie like Persona and a movie like The Seventh Seal. And I only bring those up because those are the only other Bergman movies I've seen. This is 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 a lot more like I am really almost only interested in faces and reactions. Um, and so, so the camera itself gets tight and tight and tight on their faces as they're talking, as the story focus of the story tightens in on these two. And, and there's a certain irony about that because um, as he moves the film to the big screen, it becomes more and more of a chamber drama. Uh, and that's really what it is. As, as you're pointing out, it really is just those two characters. And so I, I think, you know, you, you asked earlier about, you know, what was the relationship of the of theatrical film to the um, to the television series? And as I said, it wasn't planned that way. But I do think that Bergman has done a very interesting job of re-envisioning the nature of, of, of the project. And, and I can say that without having watched the miniseries because you just hit on some of the ways in which it's different. I mean, he really did make a decision that if he was going to move this into the into the cinema, he had to decide exactly what kind of film it was, and it became much more about just these two people. So, for example, I know that one of the um, longer pieces that's cut out is Marianne has a long conversation with her mother about her mother's relationship with her father and the nature of that marriage. And I think that's a really wise cut. You know, without even watching it, I can understand why Bergman did that, because that wouldn't it, it wouldn't fit. As you say, there's a sense after the first two episodes, there's this sense of isolation and focusing only on these two characters. And so I think it's very 
in that case, in that sense, I think he really has um, created a, a, a structure that is unique to the to the theatrical film as opposed to the series. Um, it, but what's interesting about this is that Bergman only makes four films after this. So this is towards the end of his career. And of those four films, two of them are also mm-hmm. TV minis conceived as TV miniseries that then get cut down into a theatrical release. Now, in both those cases, the theatrical release beats the miniseries to air. Um, so 1976 face to face with Ullman and Josephson and then 1982 Fanny and Alexander, both of those are so, so it's almost like he landed on this thing and is like, actually, this is, this is interesting and this works. And he keeps coming back to that. Um, you may not know the answer to this, but this strikes me as very early for a renowned filmmaker to, to pivot to television as a me, as a medium for art, not just commerce. Um, where now that's far more common. We'll see direct. I mean, we'll see like David Fincher, you know, in his Netflix deal does multiple TV shows and things like that. Like that, like we don't think much of that now. Uh, but in, in the seventies, was that, was that a really strange move? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm answering off the top of my head, Sam, but I, I can't, I mean, the reason I'm, I'm saying it's a very strange move. Um, and okay. I will preface this by saying, I have no idea whether it was an, more common move in Europe, mm-hmm. but uh, and it may have been, maybe there may, there may be plenty of things I'm ignorant of in, in Europe, but I can't think of it in the United States. And one additional piece of evidence I would add is it was a big deal in 1990 when Lynch did Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. right? The idea that a director like that was going to do a TV series. That was, that was kind of groundbreaking. Um, and, and then after that, so other people kind of moved, moved into that. So, I think it, certainly from an American perspective, this is a unique uh, phenomenon. The other thing I think that's interesting about this is how this um, kind of presages the time period we're living in now, because this film was deemed ineligible for the Oscars, <laughs> you know, in part because it's it's an edited down of, of this television project. So, it, so it's not up for best foreign language film uh, in 74, 73, 74, whenever that would be. Um, and so it raises the question of so what is a film <laughs> like like, like <laughs> and now we're living in a world because of streaming and day of date release and things barely if at all being released in theater saying well what does it mean to make a film is a film does a film have to be this thing or can it be these other things and i feel like uh like bergman is maybe on the cutting edge of that question in the modern era well, strange, strange, strange is the art of our necessities, right? I mean, he, I mean, he he did this not necessarily because he thought here's an avant-garde move I can make, but he thought, what can I afford to do, and what will people watch? Um, and I assume that's partly maybe the reason why he did it a couple more times, and that is, it's a lot cheaper to work in television, uh, and then he gets a lot of support uh, because of the success in television. So, uh, as we dive into this movie, uh, I mean, the title of the film is. Uh, kind of beautifully clear cut it's it's a it's a mission statement in and of itself um and we'll talk about this when we maybe get to the end i feel like this is a great like filmmaking directing challenge like i I feel like there's lots of filmmakers i would love to see like make scenes make something called scenes from a marriage like like it's it's like a writing prompt like what does that mean to you um and it's so it's broken into six parts or six scenes um, and each of the scenes covers, or excuse me, has its own title and title card, and these correspond with the with the TV episodes. So you can actually see, like, okay, this is episode one, 
you know, cut down and, and, and reworked, but, but we, you can see those things. Um, so while the, the, the title of the film itself is sort of a, a straightforward laying out what this is going to be, I find the titles of the individual scenes really interesting mm-hmm. um, for sort of, you know, thinking about these. Before we dig into it, I have a weird question that I think I maybe found the answer to, but I'll ask it to you anyway, because within the context of the text of the film, this is not answered. <laughs> this, this film covers a 10-year period of time, right? Yes. So do you think that this film begins in 1963 and ends in 73 or does it begin in 1973 and end in 1983? Now at one level, who cares, but that's a really interesting span of time to think about 1963 to 1983, like, like what is happening in the world. So I, so when you watched it, how did you view it? I, I feel like the, the film exists in its own in its own time frame. And and really the only reference you get to the world outside the film is in that initial interview when they're talking to the, to the uh, reporter and he talks about not being concerned about what's going on in the outside world. So so the question you're raising, Sam, is okay, so is he saying that in 1973? Is he saying it in 63 and 63 is much more Vietnam going on? I I, I think the film um almost locates itself in a timeless place um because one of the other things you'll notice is it it makes no effort to age the characters mm-hmm. uh, they look no differently in scene six than they did in part six than they did in part one so i i think uh, i don't know if this is a deliberate strategy on bergman's part but i think it gets back to this idea of um and we talked about this way back with unfaithful years the idea that he's trying to capture uh, certain elements of marital and romantic relationships that don't really depend on any particular society or time, but just part of how we are as a uh, as a as a species. I a thousand percent agree with you. Yeah, like like it seems like it's all set in 1973 because that's what we that's where people are living and what they know at the time. Now, from reading about the TV play or the the TV version. In some of the recaps that I read, it makes reference to something that happened when they were first married in and and that the year that that happened was 1955. So presumably this ends in 1973. So so uh, so we're to believe it, but it doesn't matter. Like like again, it's a weird irrelevant question, but I did think about like if you're thinking about the the uh, span of time, where do we locate this cuz it like you said it all seems to happen, you know, um it all seems to happen immediately mm-hmm. uh, and it's interesting to to look for indicators of time in the different scenes because i think the first couple seem like they're happening the next day the next day and then all of a sudden it's three years and seven years later um so uh i think this film is uh an absolute acting showcase for ullman mm-hmm. and josephson um especially ullman uh and like you said, it has sort of a documentary feel to it. And part of that, I think, is the shot on 16 and bumped up to 35. So you have it's it's it has this grainier feel to it, which is actually really beautiful in this. Um, you know, I, that, that's not always something that I love. But in this case, it, it and maybe it's watching it 50 years later that you're like, this looks really great. I wonder at the time if it like like how that read. But to me, that reads re- looks really amazing to look at visually. I just want to say a quick something about the actors. I mean, obviously, those of, those who have been with us for Persona will remember Lee Ullman and B.B. Anderson, uh, who is Katrina uh, from, from Persona. And just to note that, uh, you know, Ullman, Ullman made 10 films uh, with, with Bergman. She had a, 
uh, long-term relationship with him. They, they never married. They had a five-year relationship. They had a child together. So there, there's always that kind of autobiographical element of what's, of what's going on. And then uh, we previously encountered Josephson as the protagonist in The Sacrifice. Um, so, which, you know, okay, I have to admit, Sam, I didn't re realize that either. So I actually had to go back and look at the, uh, look at a couple scenes in the sacrifice and saying, and, uh, saying, how did I miss that? Well, it is almost 10 years later and he doesn't have a beard. So I, I'm going to give myself a pass on that. Well, and I would say, again, it's, I haven't seen the sacrifice since we watched it, but uh, very different filmmakers in terms of my sense. Of, this is so much on the face of of um, mm. of Josephson, where I feel like when I'm picturing set the sacrifice, I'm picturing yeah. these wider shots, and I'm not yeah. pressed in on the face of him. So I forgive both of us for not picking <laughs> that up because because yeah. like like every shot I think of in the sacrifice is the, is the camera at at this interesting distance from him. No, you're exactly right. And I, as I said, I went back and I watched a few scenes. In fact, I found a very, a very interesting uh, video series. This guy that does ten to fifteen minute videos, very much like what we do, but a little bit more compressed. And he had a number of scenes, and you're exactly right. Most of them, you don't see people's faces very well. So, what's interesting about this movie is it, it's it's a very, I mean, it's a because it's conversations. It's a very talky movie in that way. Yeah. What's great about this movie is that this is a movie about nonverbals and reactions and watching people hear things. Um, and that that's where I think the the what's so riveting about it. I mean, I was struck by even in the first uh the first part of the first scene when they're being interviewed, um, I was I just thought this is the most interesting, exciting thing I'm watching. And and it's you're and nothing's happening yet. And and you know like like it it picks up some steam in the back half as you get uh uh, the other couple, <laughs> like like that, that. There's some fireworks there, some verbal fireworks. But in the beginning, it's it. There is something so riveting about watching them, uh, watching them be interviewed. I would, I would argue, because I think BB Anderson's the best thing in Persona. I think Allman might be better in this than she is in Persona to me, because she has so much more to do, yeah. and so you know she has to be so blank in Persona, which which in and of itself is an acting feat, but. Here, I just I could not take my eyes off of her performance. Yeah, I know she is the the range that she has, and you know, as we'll talk about, the arc that her character describes is is really fascinating to watch. Now, I will say that there are some things that are said and done in this film by Johan and Mary Ann, some reactions that they have that didn't make sense to me with twenty twenty three eyes, and I had to realize that it's like 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 the. The way we look at marriage, the way we look at certain things feels very different than I'm assuming what they're wrestling with in the 60s or 70s whenever we're placing some of these scenes. But I will say that the quality of the performances was so good that instead of me saying merely, well, why are they reacting like that? Instead, it it forced me to ask questions of like, huh, that is an interesting reaction to this. I wonder why that is. Mm -hmm. As opposed to me being like dismissive of it, like, well, this doesn't, no one would do that or no one should do that. Instead, it forced me to ask questions about the worlds that these people were living in, the, their views of themselves, their views of their roles, that their reactions would be the way that they are. And we can, we'll get into that as we get into the movie. But But I think that's a credit to how good those central performances are, that they seem very real, even though, 
I'm I'm not happy with their reactions sometimes. It feels like you shouldn't do that. Well, you know, you should your reaction should be different than that. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, I I think I think it's a combination of the performances and and the quality of the of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, Bergman was not a director that, uh, and also a writer who allowed for uh, improvisation. Uh, and so I think the the fact that it works well is that combination of the writing and the performing. Well, that's even more stunning because this feels feels like the kind of film film that would be would work well if you were highly improvisational. Yeah. It's like, well, here's the basic thing that's happening. Let's see where you go with this. So to hear that 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 that's not the way that a film like this works makes those performances even better. And and I can't. I mean, this is you know this is very complex dialogue, and yet. I think it's Ullman talks about the fact that she and Josephson um, learned their lines so quickly that uh, Bergman was astonished that they were that they were able to kind of get into it so uh, so immediately. And so I I just think I think there's a there's a kind of um, chemistry, maybe even an alchemy that's happening in the in this film. It's 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 Josephson and and Ullman working together, which they have a number of times, and then and then Bergman, like the, the three of them, kind of work as a as a uh, as a synergistic unit, I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well. Absolutely. So let's jump into the jump into the specifics of the film. So I just kind of want to go scene by scene, uh, and I'll watch the clock to make sure we don't linger too long anywhere because you could spend a long time talking about this movie. So the first scene is titled "Innocence and Panic." Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just up top, I'll ask you your thoughts on that title for what happens in this scene. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's pretty clear, right? I mean, so so in, so innocence is the, is the scene on the couch, and you know, so Bergman's setting this up that uh, you know you have Johan as he's self confident, he's ebullient, he's loquacious, she's quiet and reserved, and there's this this innocence about the stability of their relationship and and the solidity of their marriage, and of course, the panic at the end is you don't see them panicking. But I think that what the title tells you is they are internally panicking as they watch Peter and Katrina kind of go at each other. It's like a scene out of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I wrote the exact uh, same title down. <laughs> yeah. And, and at one point she says to him towards the end of that scene, we speak the same language and trust each other. And that that's the panic. OK, I mean, I mean that's the innocent expression hiding the panic that they're feeling. So I just and I, and I think that's why Bergman uses the other couple. He needs he needs a way to um, disrupt what we saw in the first half of the scene. That's also organic. There has to be there has to be a reason for them to be th- to be, to start to think about whether or not their assumptions about each other and and themselves are actually um, reliable. Right, right, and even so, even in the first half of this scene where where they're doing the interview. There are all of these little indicators of things that are going to bubble up later. So um, I love, I love when the, the, so first they're taking pictures, they have, you know, with the daughters and then the daughters are gone and you don't realize at the time, we're never going to see these kids again. This, even in the, even in the theater or the, the TV version, I think that's the only shot you see of the daughters is what it sounds like. It's like, we are, this is not, because if you have the daughters in there, that plays on all these other sympathies and it, and it changes the dynamic. So instead you're just focusing on those two. Um, 
I love when the interviewer asked them in a few words to describe themselves. I wrote down everything that Johan, all the words he uses. So he describes himself as bright, youthful, successful, sexy, educated, a great mixer, a good friend, especially to the less fortunate, sporty, a good father, a good son, no debts, pays taxes, respects the government, loyal to the royal family, member of the state church, and a fantastic lover. Like he, which tells you everything about him, whether those things are true or not. He's somebody who in front of a reporter writing a story about him and he and his wife would be like, let me tell you about me. (laughs) To which Marianne answers the same question, married, two daughters, happy with the life I lead. That's all she says. Yes, yes. And so so that again, and then then the next thing she says is, Johan is really great (laughs) or something (laughs) like that. Like it's like she pivots to him right away, which... When you get to the very end of this, uh, at very end of the film, you see her talking about how all the the roles that she feels like she has had to act and play, and you and 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 you reflect back on that opening, and you're like, yes, you, yeah. this is this is you. And she says, I don't know, I didn't know who I was, or I don't know who I am. These are the words of somebody who does not know who they are, right? Because yeah, everything I mean, she says is about other people. Yeah, I mean, the, the structure of the film is almost like a chiasmus. It's like she she goes in one direction and he goes in the other direction and they cross. The, the other thing I think is ironic about innocence in this, in this uh, chapter is that she thinks that she's not innocent. So she says at one point, the very lack of problems could cause strife. And then she says that she is well aware of the hazards of a life like ours. And she has no idea what the hazards are of a life like all like guys or or she does. And she's just stuffing it mm-hmm. uh, and not and not confronting it. So so innocence is really kind of a double edged sword in that in that description. I What I also love is when she starts to talk about her job as a lawyer, she gets cut off. But it's not by Johan. It's by the interviewer. The yeah. interviewer's like, so it's because one of the other things she says later at the, in the very final scene from this movie, she says, I've been overmatched having to fight against you, both of our parents and society. <laughs> so that's one of those moments where it's like, even the female reporter is like, yeah, yeah, I don't really want to hear about your job. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let's focus on this other thing. So, so, so she's silenced by an outside person in that way. Even somebody who you think, if anybody's going to be sympathetic to her, it's this female reporter writing a story about them. But she's silenced by her. And that's also where I'm going to say something about the historical time context, because Sweden in 1973, you expect to be a little more progressive than that. Um, and it is progressive in that she's a lawyer, but it's not progressive in that she is cast mostly in terms of her domestic role. And that's even how she sees herself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the other thing from this interview is uh, when they talk about the hazards and then they sort of lay out their philosophy on life. And Johan says, you know, I believe in live and let live. It's OK to look out for number one. And Marianne says, I believe more in compassion. Um, and, and again, these are indicators of places we're going to go. Then we cut to the fantastic dinner party scene. This is one of my favorite scenes because it has also one of my favorite actresses, uh, period, in it. So seeing B.B. Anderson just made me so excited because he's kind of the best. This is our third B.B. Anderson movie, too, that we've yes, seen. Yes. She has a small role in Babette's Feast. Mm-hmm. So um, so we watch Peter and Katerina as they kind of bicker and argue and openly discuss their marriage and divorce. And what I found interesting about this is this is a moment where... 
we're watching a movie about scenes from a marriage, and that marriage is Johan and Marianne. But within it, Johan and Marianne are watching a scene from someone else's marriage play out, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like a a, a, a Russian doll, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and so so they're so we're watching them watch what we're going to be watching later, right? You know, right. it's it's this kind of foreshadowing, and even some of the language, yeah. some of the things, you know, it's going to take them a while to get to this to this point, but but it's like they're watching somebody who's further along in this process. I thought that scene was was kind of amazing. And they're thinking that's not us, but they're also thinking maybe it could be us, or why isn't it us? And that's that's back to the panic uh, yep. idea. And then we have the great cleanup scene where they're, as you already talked about, where they're kind of assuring themselves that they're okay. But even they have different reasons for thinking they're okay, right? Because she talks about speaking the same language and communication, and Johan is like, no, it's money. Like, like because we have money... We don't have to worry about these things and we're going to be okay. Because he also describes them in the interview as ridiculously bourgeois, mm-hmm. which I love that, you know, like like saying like, okay, let, let's tell you about like both of us are coming and from this, this degree of comfort, which I think is important because we're going to see where this story leads them by the end of this. I should also mention one of my favorite lines in here is when, when uh, we, I talked about this as a chamber drama earlier and, uh, Peter quotes Strindberg, you know, one of the great playwrights of, of, of chamber dramas. Can there be anything more terrifying than a husband and wife who hate each other? And that's the yeah, again, that's a that's a real and and of course we and we hear I think it's in uh, the fourth scene I think it is that uh, Johann actually says that he hates uh, Marianne. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we get to part two, which has my favorite title: "The Art of Sweeping Things Under the Rug." Um, which again tells you what this is going to be. Um, so it starts with them getting up in the morning and this attempt to cancel their regular Sunday plans with Marianne's parents. This seems so utterly relatable. The conversation they have of like, can't it just be us? You yeah. know, yeah. Um, which uh, also watching this, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, like this is a, a thing that I think couples, especially families often have, which is like, when is the holiday going to be our holiday instead of us in the service of another, you know, other people's holiday or something like this? Um, and they're they're sort of together in this, you know, this great uh, revolution, you know, uprising, and uh, uh, and she, but she gets on the phone, and you, and it's such a great performance because you only get the one side of the conversation, and you watch her make her bold stand and then just collapse, you know, under the weight of uh guilt and pressure and expectations and you and you understand oh this has been her whole life you know and she talks later about i when i was young i was reprimanded for speaking my mind and we we get to see a little glimpse of that yeah and so and and you know and and it it gets at the issue you mentioned talks about earlier about you know family and society you know being kind of forces that she has to fight against. And Johan says about halfway through the scene, I wish I could be certain our mothers didn't do the choosing. Mm-hmm. Right. So so there's this sense that they they don't really have control over over their own lives. And uh and of course the, the the phone is interesting in that scene as well because Johan's about to make a call and we're not sure exactly what it is he's about to who he's you know what it is he's canceling because it's quite clear that he wasn't going directly to work mm-hmm. so there's 
other little clues kind of being laid out of that with that same telephone. The, the telephone is the means of connecting them to the parents, but it's also the suggestion of his effort to break uh, to break loose. Mm-hmm. And and in the the television version, we learn about that a little bit. I mean, it's in it's in the next scene, but we learn or excuse me, we learn about it later in this scene a little bit more that there is these more of a doubt about that. But in the in the theatrical release, we get that one shot, but it definitely it definitely hits you like who was he going to call? And then he hangs up and we we never get to see that conversation. So then we get to Johan in the lab talking with his colleague. You know, he's sharing his he has shared his poetry with her. And uh, it is it is decidedly mediocre, we're told. And she has this really crushing line where she says, in our old crowd, we believed you were destined for great things. And the past tense of that, mm. talking to this, you know, 43-year-old guy saying, you know, like, like that's just at the moment when you're starting to realize you may not reach the expectations that you had for yourself or others had for you. And that it's that line just sort of sits there and, and it tells us everything about what people thought about him and what he thinks of what he, we saw what he thinks about himself in, in the the opening interview. And now we're seeing somebody else talk about him um, with some pretty crushing tone to it. Yeah. He discovers that the, you know, he doesn't get the Cleveland university appointment and he had thought, you know, you get this, he has this image of himself as I'm too good for this backwater. And now he discovers he's actually not good enough to, for, for Cleveland. Um, but it also, this is maybe an obvious thing to say, Sam, but it, but it also points out the that Bergman is getting at the interrelationship between self-knowledge and knowledge of others and how those two things are related. Like, how, how can you know others? How can you know what's happening in a relationship if you don't also know yourself? Uh, and so I think that's what we, that's what we see slowly unfolding about Johan is that is how, how poorly he actually knows himself or how much his view of himself is out of sync with the reality of, of his circumstances or the views that others have of him. So then we cut to a scene of Marianne at work and she's talking with a client and an older woman who, uh, whose children have now grown up and left and she wants a divorce. And she is described again, this, this feels like she's describing feelings that our characters are going to have later. Right. She talks about, a loveless marriage. She says, I've lived a life. Excuse me. The life I've lived has stifled my potential, my potential. Um, She describes sort of that her senses are deadened and dry. And we see the camera keep closing in on Marianne's face as she doesn't say anything, but she's, you can tell she's relating to what this person is saying. And there's even this point where she wants to ask this question about love and gets halfway through it. And then just, can't articulate what she wants to ask or, or is afraid to articulate what she wants there, what she wants to ask there. And, and this kind con- this conversation will come back at the very end, right? When, when Marianne herself says, I don't know if I've ever loved anybody or if mm-hmm. I've ever been loved. So this plants a real seed in her. Um, the, uh, the, the client also says something about loneliness is a loveless marriage. Um, and Johan has also has things to say about loneliness as well and being lonely in, in a loveless. He says that about his new relationship with Paula. So this it's really interesting because this is another version of a scene from a marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Peter and Kat- Katrina, we see them playing it out. But this woman is playing out another reflection 
on Johann and Marianne's marriage. And so in a sense, both of those dynamics happen, right? You see them you see them being violent physically and uh, verbally toward each other. And you see them with this sense of uh, lovelessness and loneliness in, within the marriage. So then we see them return, return from the theater that night and they're sitting in the living room talking and they're talking about their sex life basically. And that they're, they're both too busy and too tired for sex. And Marianne expresses that she doesn't find it satisfying um, and uh, Johan mentions that affection takes time and we don't have time for affection, uh, but it still doesn't. But this is this is the sweeping under the rug part. Like they, they're explaining why it's like, yes, all of this, but still we're OK, you know, and, and, and you're, so you're so this this scene is all about these things kind of bubbling up, these realizations bubbling up. But this attempt to be like, but we don't have to face them yet to a certain degree. Yeah, and I think it's Johan that says, um our life is full of little evasions and restrictions. Um, but then, but then he also says, well, this, this is, you know, best not to talk about it. Um, and he, and then he says to her, you know, you're adorable, uh, even though you do scold and fuss. So, so, so that's the sweeping under the rug, right? Cause you, you get the dirt, you know, you're, you're, you're fussy. You scold me. Um, he talks about uh, that Marianne's m- mother has set, has created standards that are too high that, you know, that nobody can meet. Um, he, you know, he's, he says a moment, of, there's a moment of truth. Our life is full of evasions and restrictions, but then ironically he evades and he sweeps it right back un, under, under, under the rug. And one of the things I think that I, I mean, I certainly really related to, um, is that at least in my marriage, and I don't think I'm, I'm unique. Um, I, I do tend to be the one who doesn't necessarily want to talk about problems. And my wife tends to be the one who wants to talk things out and, um, and I think you, you see you see a lot of that going on going on here. And sometimes it's he that wants to talk, sometimes she's reticent. But they both kind of join together in this project of let's not confront what we either know or what we don't want to find out. Um, exactly. You know, we know there's something that we might want to look into, but if we look into it, who knows where that will lead? So let's you know let's take what we know we've got right now and not risk it. So then we go to the third scene, which is titled Paula. And this is the longest scene in the movie. This is 40 minutes long. So nearly uncut from the um, from the, the television version. Um, and from this point on, there is not another actor in the movie. This that, that Now we've gotten rid of all the outside. And now we really start to tighten the focus. Um, so Johan arrives home. Um, clearly, he's been gone for a bit because they talk about this phone argument that they've been having about a tuxedo. Um, and, but, but now he's back home, uh, and he reveals that he has fallen in love with Paula and that he's leaving for France with her for as much as six months. Um, and here's where my initial reaction was to be so confused by Marianne's reaction Mm. because she doesn't seem, she seems so accepting initially, or like, doesn't seem upset in the way that I like want her to be upset. Um, I mean, she wants to, you know, the fact that they sleep in the same bed, it's like, what, (laughs) you know, like, like, like this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Um, She, um, uh, she offers sex to him at a certain point, try to get him to stay. She offers to pack for him to pick up his suit. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me, but you know, then I start to think about like, okay, who, 
who is she, what is the role that she feels like she's supposed to play here right cuz she's you know is thinking of herself as like okay i am a modern progressive intellectual woman and we can talk we can deal with these things not merely on kind of an emotional level i mean cuz earlier in the movie they joke about him or talk or joke about him taking a mistress or something like this, you know, if he's not happy with her in terms of sex and things like that. So it's like, there is this sense of like, are we not supposed to be the people for whom this cliche should play in, should lead us to other cliched reactions and things like this. But as you watch the scene, you see Marianne internally going through all of these stages. This is where I feel like Liv Allman is maybe this is, the, the peak of her acting here because there's all this stuff right under the surface that comes out at, in little pieces, but she you can see her trying to tamp that down at the same time. It's really remarkable. It is. And and and, and I think part of the issue is they're they're operating on different wavelengths at this point because he's really trying to to blow things up, right? He says, um uh he says, I don't imagine for one minute I've touched on the truth about us. Feels good to act like a cad. A catastrophe might be our best hope. Um, and, I, and I think that her response is based on the idea that, well, um, if I do everything I can to kind of maintain my loyalty to him, uh, to show him that, you know, uh, this is not an irrevocable break, um, you know, that he'll come to his senses and he'll come back to me. So I, I think that you know I think that's why she she's responding that way and 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 he's even giving mixed signals right because he says at one point I might be back in a week mm-hmm. so it's 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 very odd the, the approach he's taking because he's both being a cad and telling her he's being a cad and then telling her he feels guilty about being a cad so she actually hasn't been presented with a very clear I mean it's not very clear what she's supposed to respond to so 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 so, so I think she reverts to the complacent behavior and the complacent in the sense of trying to please she 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 resorts to a complacent behavior because she feels like well I don't want to do anything that's going to cause this permanent break and he's leaving open these possibilities so I better do what I can in order to show him that I still have affection for him that I even want to have sex with him so I I think it's because she's not ready to confront the idea of an actual break at this point well, it's interesting because at this point in the movie, he's we've seen indications that he that his trajectory might be limited, but he's still at the point where he has not he's not in the decline quite yet. Right. So it's it's almost like here's the sense of like this might be my last opportunity to make a change before I enter the decline that I'm maybe seeing indications of in terms of his career. Because even when he talks, she asks about money and things like that, and he's basically I you know I don't care about the cost. But we also hear that he's sold this boat and he's taken out a loan. And you're like, okay, these are this, these are these are things which are going to become a part of a downfall later on. But he's not even considering those things as he's thinking about these actions. It's almost like he's also playing a role of like, like, like I need if I'm going to do this, I need to do this to this full extent. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But and that's why there's also kind of the the shame that he that he expresses there as well. I mean, even calling himself a cad is adopting a particular social role, right? A particular cliche, in a sense, yeah. Uh, The interesting thing, like Paula, we never see in this movie. Uh, The only picture we get of her is when Marianne sort of demands a description. And we get a 
very strange even like mixed message descriptions of her he's like well you probably find her ugly but then they talk about how beautiful she is so it's like so so who is she um and i kind of i i really love that um and this scene then ends with marianne calling a friend to mm-hmm. i think to 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 connect with somebody and comes to the realization that basically she's the last person to know about this that it's like oh all of the rest of you knew and nobody nobody t- thought to tell me about this and my understanding, I think you alluded to this earlier, Sam, my understanding, though, is that um, because of some of the editing that Bergman did, that this comes, that the audience gets hit with this much more quickly than they do in the in the TV version, that we have some other indications than the TV version that this, this is going on. Yeah, within scene two at the end, I think they, they're, they're having a conversation where there's a lot more track laid for this. So this comes... Yeah, this comes more as an abrupt thing. Well, I, mean, I when, when when he said this to her, I I literally gasped as I was as I was watching, and the the close up on her face and her response, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but you know, when he when he pulls out the photographs, you realize um, Bergman's not going to show you these pictures. Yes, you're, you're never you're never going to see this woman. Right, because it's almost like Marianne. It's like we're stuck trying to imagine who would he leave her for. Yeah, right. Like, like we're we're really put in her shoes there, which is it just really well done. So, okay, so we go to part uh, four, which is the shortest of the chapters, but a really important one: Veil of Tears. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you heard when you hear that title, what comes to mind? <laughs> I just think of sorrow in the valley of shadow of death, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, this this world is a veil of tears, and we're passing through. Exactly, but but the passing through part is part of it. That this is this is a du- a dark moment, but there's also a coming out of it. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um. So, uh, this is six months later after Johan returns. Um. They have dinner together. They. Uh. This is where he talks about moving to the U.S. and potentially getting the job in Cleveland. So he has these sort of prospects and hopes still. Um. Throughout this scene, we see Johan keep trying to initiate sex with Marianne and her wanting to talk, but wanting to sort of push him away from that, um, at least for the the, the first parts of this. Um, here's where Marianne talks about, like, well, we should just do the divorce now then, <laughs> you know, because it's like, if you're going to leave, this is only going to get more complicated. She hints that she might want to be remarried, that she might want to remarry. She talks about seeing a therapist. Um, and then we get this great moment where she reads from her journal, which is, mm-hmm. I think, the the set piece of this. Um, and here's where she uh, it's it's really well done because she's reading. And instead of just watching her read, we cut to childhood photographs of, of Liv Ullman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, she talks about how um, she had looked at old pictures from school and didn't know who she was. She always did what she was told. She was reprimanded for asserting herself. She talks about at puberty, all of her thoughts, feelings, and actions started to revolve around sex, but she never expressed those things. Um, and then um, she talks about how she was pushed into being a lawyer, but wanted to be an actress. And then talks about how her whole life has been an act. You know, mm-hmm. it's like like she's been playing this role. So in some ways, she she actually did become an actress, but not in the way that you think. And instead she's, she's been playing this role the whole time. Um, And we cut, you know, and and she's saying, you know, like one of the problems is we never broke free from our parents. And had we done that, that might've created an opportunity. And then we cut over to Johan who has fallen asleep. So he is not even listening to this like moment of revelation from her. And it's uh, you know, and this is a, 
classic Bergman theme. You know, one, one of the things that we, we could talk about is, you know, how, how does this film reflect uh, some of Bergman's traditional concerns and certainly the power of the, of the family, the power of the parent to shape the child and in Bergman's view, you know, damage or constrict the child, that, that comes out uh, very clearly here. And of course, the other thing they're working towards is um, our families have done this to us, but at the same time, we still bear responsibility mm-hmm. for what we do with our lives uh, once we recognize that's the case. So uh, then we go, they go to bed and it's unclear exactly if the, if, if that was just sleeping or if they had sex, we were, that's unclear, but it's important in this movie to think about that. Um, Johan can't sleep. He gets up to leave. Marianne shows him this letter from Paula and how Paula wants to meet and Paula doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so, so partially what we see here is that some of the things Johan is maybe telling us about Paula are Johan's projections onto Paula or his attempt to keep a distance where this may not actually be the the reality of this. Um, he's dismissive of this. He leaves and we get this really great, like deep, deep close up on, on, on her face as she, as he drives away. This seems like a pivotal moment in the movie, just because we get this long hold on her face and here she's staring down the barrel of the camera right at us. Yeah, yeah, classic, classic Bergman shot with Ullman. And uh, we should also say, of course, that the bulk of the scene takes place on that green couch, mm-hmm. uh, which, is where, which is where it all started. Oh, yeah. I, you know what? I didn't catch that. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think in the longer version of this, there's more sense of how she has redone the house. I think mm-hmm. how he talks about how she's changed pictures. She does mention she threw out all of his things from the study and created an office for herself there. Yeah. So there is this sense of, again, her having ownership more. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going fast because we're, we're hurtling time-wise. Uh, <laughs> part five is the illiterates. So this is now our first big, big time jump. We're now three years later, um, and we're at Johan's office uh, to sign the divorce papers. And here Marianne seems so different we can tell a passage of time here. Johan seems beaten down and she seems so like youthful and playful. Like she's playing with the, with the magnifying glass and kind of singing to herself as he's reading over the things like she, she seems uh, gleeful in a way at the beginning of this, in a way that we have not seen her in this, in this film. Yeah. Giddy, giddy is the word I applied. To yes. She's giddy. Um, this to me is, even though it's, well past the halfway point of the film. This to me is the center of the film. Um, and and I, I thought that when I watched it and then I the interview with, with Bergman, um, he focuses on the fact that these people are emotional illiterates. Um, and to me, the most important line in, the, in this scene and in the film is, um, she said, actually, I forget which one says it. I think he says it. We are emotional illiterates. Yes. We haven't been taught anything about our souls. So if there's anything that's a classic Bergman perspective on the human condition, that is that is it. That these are people who are out of touch with their own emotions. Uh, they don't recognize or confront or, or operate out of any strong sense of who they really are in, internally. Bergman suggests that they do have an identity, but they don't know what it is. He doesn't suggest they don't have an identity, but they don't know what it is. So this scene, when you think about the arc of this scene from that opening playfulness to him actually 
hitting her. You know, it's a, the opening playfulness. They have sex on the floor. And then we end up with them shouting at each other. He hits her. I mean, this has got the whole, in a sense, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of the whole film in miniature. It's got the whole arc. Well, and it's interesting when, when, when Johans makes the emotional illiterate little speech, her response is to yawn and say, I disagree. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it, it, it is this sort of statement moment, but we're also in a, in a moment of like, well, what, what do we think of that statement? Uh, you know, is cause she seems dismissive of dismissive of that. It's interesting when they have sex, um, even the kind of blocking of this, that like, there's a point where she gets on top and she's directing him. Mm. You know, she says, put your hands on my hips, do this. So like, mm-hmm. like you can tell she has gone through some change, uh, some change here. She is far more in charge. Here's where we learn that he has lost the job in Cleveland. He is very mm-hmm. much on the decline. They're both pretty tapped for money at this point. Um, and this is where she says the line about, um, I've spent too long subject to your whims, uh, to your whims and wants. Um, this is where she talks about fighting with him, their parents and society. And we see that Johan doesn't want a divorce. Then we get this physical violence between them and, and especially from him. And again, this maybe plays differently in 2023 than 1973 in terms of like, like this would be, this would hit so different if this was in a movie now to be like, okay, once you go there, it's one thing about arguing. Once you get physical with another person, like that's, you know, it, it just plays differently. And then it ends with them signing the divorce papers. And then one of them says, the other key line to me is being considerate killed our love. Mm. Warning lights were flashing all around us, but we ignored them. So in other words, because we didn't fight, we didn't have the opportunity to grow. Yeah. So then we get to the final scene uh, in the middle of the night in a dark house, another great title. Um, and we see this is now seven years later. Mm. Uh, and Marianne and Johan are married to different people. But it, for at least a year, they have connected at least once, maybe multiple times, and they're going off back to their summer cottage um, to to initiate or continue an affair. Um, and now we see how much they've changed. I mean, Johan talks about, you know, I've accepted the true dim- my true dimensions with a certain sense of humility. We've mm-hmm. discovered ourselves. Um, one faces up to his insignificance, the other to her greatness. So, <laughs> and so there is this sense of like, like you said, of like he's on the decline and she seems ascending in a kind of way, at least in terms of sort of her understanding of her of her personhood and self in a way that's so different than the person we see in that opening scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marianne says, uh, I persevere, I enjoy myself, I rely on common sense and gut feelings. Time has given me a third partner experience. Yeah. Um, so 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 like like she again, she seems sort of transformed here. And then it closes with Marianne having this night this nightmare where she describes crossing a dangerous road with Johan and her daughters, but she doesn't have hands, so she can't hold on to them. And then she says she's sliding around in the sand and can't reach them. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, Sam, because, you know, they, they have this conversation. Johan has a wonderful line. He says, promise me no more infinite truths tonight. So it's like they can go so far with the truth, but then he says, you cast such a cold light on everything. They go to bed and it's a moment of, you know, of love and, and it fades to black. And I think, why doesn't Bergman end it here? 
But I, but so, so, and, and then we get the nightmare, right? So then we get this idea that despite all this, because it's Bergman, right? He's got to pull the rug out from under you. Despite all this reassurance, despite this rapprochement, despite the sense that their love has been reaffirmed, she still has this fear that she actually can't connect with, with other people uh, and especially with him. And it's after this that she says the line, sometimes it grieves me that I've never loved anyone and I've not been loved either, which is kind of what the nightmare expresses for her. And then his response is to say, I love you in my own selfish way. And I think you love me in your fussy pestering way. So there is this sense of like, maybe love isn't the thing that we thought it was, but that doesn't mean it is, there isn't love. It's just, it is just maybe not this in the way everything else has these sort of social familial projections of what it's supposed to be. Maybe what we need to do is think differently about what we mean when we say love. Yeah, and, and then you get this kind of funny line, which doesn't seem to go with with this notion that you need to kind of examine your relationship. Because he says, if we harp on it, our love will evaporate. Mm-hmm. So then, so then the question is, well, well, what are they defining as their love now? You know, are they are they, are they defining as their as their love this ability to be honest with each other? Or are they defining as their love the idea that you know we've we've hurt each other so badly, but we somehow can't escape one another you know so so i mean bergman is really kind of asking without i think answering necessarily what is the nature of love or is it even possible for there to be a kind of lasting love must love kind of keep sort of changing its shape so it becomes almost unrecognizable by the end of a relationship i just think which which goes back to the first scene when they're cleaning up and she says do you think people can stay together forever and this yeah this is either re-asking that question or saying like well it depends on what you how you mean, you know, how you mean those things. And then the the final thing in this movie that I really love is, you know, she said they're, they're kind of holding each other in bed and she says, let's stay like this all night. And he says, no, my leg is falling asleep and my back is cold. So there's this sense of like, again, poking a hole in like a perfect moment and being like, well, no, no, no. Like, like really we can't actually stay like this. Um, and, and then, you know, and, and then that, that leads us to the end of the the film. Um, and I and I and I love just 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 a little. I, I wonder if this is an homage by Tarkovsky that you get that foghorn blowing. And mm. I don't know if you remember in the sacrifice, the foghorn is in the background consistently. So oh, interesting. Second half of the film, anyway. So just so that, so to sort of close up here, this seems like like a great kind of auteur actor challenge. Lots of people have done films where they are doing sort of their version of this. Uh, Paul Mazursky scenes from a mall. Woody Allen multiple times things like this this seems like a very richard linklater project he talks about this when he talks about before midnight and and that series of films but he's somebody who's interested in the passage of time in film so like seems to be interested in this even noah bombach's marriage story is in in an homage to this and then this was remade in 2021 as a miniseries with oscar isaac and jessica chastain so my question for you is do you have uh an auteur that you would love to see make their own scenes from a marriage because it doesn't have to be this story, right? Like it doesn't even have to have divorce and infidelity thinking about time and marriage and relationship over time and morphing whose, whose vision would you like to see? Oh, that's a really, uh, that's that's a really interesting uh, question. Um, Gee, that's a really interesting question. Um, Okay. I'm going to do, I'm going to go for an auteur that we actually haven't watched at all. And that's Jim Jarmusch. Okay. Just because we haven't watched Jim Jarmusch, and I and I and he's such an oddball director, I'd be really interested to see how he would do this. Okay, my version will probably would probably take ten years because the actress I want in it, I want to be older, but I want to see 
Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan get back together, and I want to see oh. Saoirse Ronan as the wife and see. And I realized Noah Baumbach, her husband, made him his version of this, but I want to see her version of it. Oh, that would be great. I would, I would love to see. Yeah, I would love to see that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Um, well, I, I think one more, one more film on the marriage theme. Um, the 20, uh, 2011 Iranian film, A Separation. Fantastic. All right, Barrett. Thank you so much, uh, for recommending this film, for having this conversation. This is really great. I am going to watch these six episodes at some point. Cause I'm, pretty drawn to this uh to this project and i love ingmar bergman and i love Liv allman so i will uh, keep doing that that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about a separation in the video store Uh